there is a single thread woven through all of Scripture. It's not physical, but we see its colors, we feel its warmth, we are aware of its covering, we know its presence. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-five, a lawyer asked Jesus, testing him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. If we were to remove love, if we could remove love from the scriptures, the whole thing would unravel, but it's impossible. You cannot take love out of the scriptures because the author has woven his divine nature into the word. And God is love. So you don't have the word without God. You don't have the word without love because God is love. And as John wrote in 1 John 4.16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. And so God of love, as we open the scriptures tonight, we do so recognizing that for all the things that we're going to look at and consider and seek to reasonably understand that the essence of all this, the primary thing is love. Loving you and loving each other. Even as you first loved all of us. And I pray we wouldn't forget that. Sometimes in all the doctrines and in all the seeking to understand your word, Father, we can. Uh, Ephesus did. They had forgotten their first love. Well, they were great at, at, at discerning and at rightly judging things. At upholding the word and, and denying the heresies. Oh, they were solid on that. But you called them out, Lord, on having forgotten their first love and you called them to repent. For Father, we repent tonight. We repent of the little rabbit trails that take us away from our first love. We repent of the pride and the arrogance that sometimes creeps in as we accomplish things and forget that we are not the ones accomplishing them. But in fact, you are. We repent, Father, not as from a place of shame and guilt, as much as from a place of recognizing how easy it is for us to get just the slightest bit off. And our repentance tonight, Lord, is a turning to you. To look full on your glorious face. To turn our eyes upon Jesus. For we know, as we just sang, soon and very soon we will be there. We will see you. Continue to call us to love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. 1 Corinthians 12, 4, he says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We must remember as Paul is writing these things, talking about gifts and ministries and effects, 
the operations of God in the body and for the common good, we must remember love is the thread. He's going to get right into it in chapter 13. In fact, in the middle of addressing what to many people is one of the more exciting sections of Scripture because we get into the spirituals. right? We get excited about those and Paul pauses and says, but wait, wait, let's remember what really matters. Let's talk about the main thing. And he goes on for that entire chapter about love. We will, Lord willing, look at that on Sunday. But tonight, we consider some of the colors and the coverings of that thread, the effects, if you will, of the manifest presence of God who is love. And all of these things, if taken without love, leave us, as Paul would say, nothing. So keep that in mind. As we pick it up in verse 8, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. And to another, the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. And to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. And to another, the effecting of miracles. And to another, prophecy. And to another, the distinguishing of spirits. And to another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. Paul is dealing with recent pagans. And there at Corinth, a church that's not very old, a toddler, you might say, there's still pagan influence. Not only immediately and and in the culture of the day, but previously there's still the influence of how so many of the people in the church of Corinth had lived before. And think about it, when you come into a new thing, you come into a a church situation as they have, but they still have all those old upbringings. Those things can creep in. And throughout the letter to, to the church at Corinth, Paul is correcting those things. Things that have crept into the church. Things that, you know, man, we got a big gap of, of rows over here. I told you, ADD, Deb. Thank you. Three rows right here, and that's not even in the spit zone, you know? Thank you, my brother. Yeah, that, that makes me feel better because I was starting to go this way. And I don't even know what I was saying, Glenn. What, what was I talking about? Oh, the pagans, right, and the old influences. Okay, and that was an issue at Corinth. And as we get into the spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, chapters that have divided the church, I marvel that Paul is instructing recent pagans. And yet, sometimes for 2,000 years of Christianity, we need the same instruction they did. We need the same understanding. Paul begins to lay these things out. Verses 8, 9, and 10 are fascinating to so many. And on Sunday, if you weren't here, I said these are not spiritual gifts. I think I said that last week as well. At least in my opinion. Now, if you want to call them spiritual gifts, call them spiritual gifts. No one's going to kick you out of the church. We've been calling them that for a long time, so whatever. But, you want spiritual gifts, go to Romans 12. You want to look at ministries, go to Ephesians 4. If you want to look at the effects, the operations, the enigma is the word, I believe that's what Paul is explaining here in 1 Corinthians 12 as he talks about all these things in verses 8, 9, and 10. And we're going to sit in these three verses primarily tonight 
If we have time, we will finish the chapter toward the end. But we need to understand these. So let's go back to one one thing I shared last week. Paul's classification system. Paul's classification system, which is broken up in the language that he uses, I would begin with, and these are my words, divine instruction. Moving then into divine intervention. And then finally, operations of divine inspiration. Instruction, intervention, inspiration. Now go again, those are my words, but this is Paul's organization. And I've read many commentaries and listened to many different teachers on this section, and they all come up with these interesting ways of breaking this down, but none of them follow Paul. What did Paul say? Well, the first area, divine instruction, if you want to call it that, he says there is the word of wisdom, and then he says... And another, he says, the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another, the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another is alos, which is another of the same kind. So the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge is of the same kind. Then after that, he uses a new word for to another, and that is heteros, which is to another of a different kind, and that is faith and healing and miracles and prophecy and discernment. And then, for all those another, another, another that you see in there, those are all allos. They're another the same, another the same, another the same. Until you get to halfway through verse 10. And he says, to another heteros. So to another of a different kind, kinds of tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. So again, broken down for our understanding. Divine instruction, which is the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, these operations of the Spirit. Uh, number two, divine intervention. There is faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discernment. All of those are similar. And then finally, of another kind, of a different kind, divine inspiration, and that's tongues and interpretation of tongues. Now again, that's just following Paul's use of the Greek language. And while commentators break it down again many different ways, the organization that I just shared with you is Paul's. You don't have to say instruction, intervention, inspiration. But I think it's important that we pay attention to what goes together. And so let's look at it that way. We begin with divine instruction in verse 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. The word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. The word of wisdom is Logos Sophias. Logos Sophias, the word of wisdom. The word of knowledge is Logos Gnosis. Word of knowledge, Logos Gnosis. So Logos Sophias, Logos Gnosis, and Paul says they are of the same kind, though they are not the same thing. These are two distinct operations that are similar and oftentimes will function together but they are unique in their operation. If you go all the way back to Isaiah chapter 11, and I think this is vital to do when we're talking about the operations, the effects, the ministries, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you got to look at the, the nature of the Holy Spirit. And Isaiah laid this out for us. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him, that is Jesus, The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Wisdom and knowledge are both listed back in Isaiah 11 verse 2. So we understand that not only are these operations of the spirit, but they are natural to the spirit. They are of the spirit, innate, if you will, to the Holy Spirit. 
Wisdom and knowledge, true wisdom, true knowledge come from Him, and both are instructive, which is why I call them divine instruction. But they're instructive in unique ways. I think it's interesting that Paul begins this list with the word of wisdom, the Logos Sophia, because he is commandeering a buzzword in Corinth. He's taking it to its rightful place and giving it its rightful meaning. Sophia. The Logos Sophia. Back in 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech. That is literally not in Sophia Logos. So here he turns it around. He says it's, it's, it's not the wisdom word. It's the word of wisdom that matters. He says, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. But you may recall some in Corinth were into a special wisdom. A wisdom that was, that was their thing. Uh, serving the delights of the flesh. I mean, that's a very pagan approach to living. To have some esoteric mystery that perhaps someone else doesn't have. You know, and you cling to that as your special wisdom. And then the Corinthian church claiming the Holy Spirit would go on to say, we have a wisdom, who are you, Paul, to tell us anything? And claiming their wisdom above and beyond the wisdom of of the Apostle Paul. And he said, okay, fair enough. I didn't come to you in Sophia Logos. I didn't come to be clever. I came simply preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But now he begins to to explain there is a word of wisdom. There is a gift of wisdom. And it is not like your pagan past. Because again, the pagan past is about mystery. It's about unknowable things. It's about concealments. Not so with Jesus. You may recall back in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, Paul said, Just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him, for to us God revealed them through the Spirit. They are revealed, not concealed. And the word of wisdom as a spiritual operation is about revelation, not concealment. Jesus says, I've told you everything because you're my friends. You know, a a master doesn't tell his slave everything, but I have called you friends and I've made known to you everything that the Father has told me. So God is a God of revelation. He wants us to know. He's not trying to be secretive with us. And, And neither are we, by the way. We walk in the light as He is in the light. And we have fellowship with one another. So there is a different kind of wisdom. The wisdom from below. The wisdom of the earth. The wisdom that would be pagan wisdom. Or heathen wisdom. Or earthly wisdom is very different. James chapter 3 verse 15. The apostle said this wisdom is not that which comes down from above. But it's earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist. There is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above, this is where the word of wisdom would come from, is first pure, and then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. The word of wisdom that comes from the Spirit is wisdom from above. And it is instructive and similar to, but also very unique from, the word of knowledge. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge. 
The word of knowledge is also something that's supernaturally given. Don't miss that. The word of wisdom is not something you generate in yourself. It is not based on book study. Some of you will be glad to know that. The word of wisdom comes from the Father through the Spirit. It is divine. It is supernatural. And I'll give it more definition in just a moment. But same with the word of knowledge. Now the word of knowledge is often aligned, and I think rightly so, with the gift and ministry of teaching. The word of knowledge goes along with the gift and ministry of teaching because it involves something, knowing something that you know you shouldn't know. And I can tell you that happens to me all the time. Studying the Word of God and realizing something, understanding something that I shouldn't know. And when it happens, it's, it's kind of a thrill, to be honest. Realizing something, recognizing something, jotting it down in notes, and then grabbing a couple of commentaries just to see, well, what do they say? And if they agree with me, obviously they're right, and if they disagree, well, they missed it. <laughs> no, seriously, it's, it's when you have those moments, and I'm talking about divine spiritual moments, moments with Jesus, where suddenly you realize something, and it can happen during Bible study. In fact, I bet it does often. You're sitting there, you're studying along, I'm saying something, blah, blah, blah. It kind of sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. And suddenly you get something, and you're reading, and you, oh, I've never seen that before. And that may very well be a word of knowledge. That you're receiving some spiritual download. It's knowing something that you know you shouldn't know, or, or wouldn't otherwise know. Because these are divine manifestations. These are not, in this list of operations, these are not human instigations. And there's far too much human instigation, I fear, in the church. Far too much sitting down, figuring out what we ought to do and then doing that. Instead of waiting for divine manifestation. Listening and asking the Lord, what would you have us do? We need the word of wisdom. And we need the word of knowledge. But how do they differ? Because I think it's in looking at their differences that we can understand their meaning a little bit better. If we just look at them from the natural perspective, I think we'll understand. Because even in the natural world, knowledge is about information. Wisdom is about application. Knowledge you get from studying, from reading a book, from something someone shares. It's, it's information. Now I know something. But wisdom is now the application of the information. It's taking what you've learned and putting it into practice, putting it into play. And Chuck Smith said, Knowledge will tell you that the cute little black animal with the white stripe down its back is not a cat. <laughs> wisdom will tell you, back away. <laughs> Keep your distance. So that's a very clear distinction between the two. Knowledge, I know this. Wisdom, I'm acting on it. So that's very practical for both. The word of wisdom is knowledge spiritually applied. It is the word of knowledge spiritually applied. Before I say anything else about it, understand that true wisdom always brings with it something else. Job was the first to tell us. Job 28, verse 28. To man God said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. 
David was the next one to tell us about this. Psalm 111 verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Solomon, catching up to his forebears, Proverbs 15.33 says, The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom, and, from, and before honor comes humility. So we need to understand that if the word of wisdom is given, if it is supernaturally in operation among us, it will bring with it the fear of the Lord. Naturally, a word of wisdom brings a sense of awe and reverence because of the recognition of where it's coming from. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so, the interaction of wisdom with knowledge is significant. If you have a word of knowledge, suddenly you understand something. And you recognize now it's being given as wisdom. It's something to bring, to share, to utilize in some way or another. There's something very holy about that, and it should bring the fear of the Lord. Knowledge alone is dangerous. Because knowledge, as Paul has already told us, puffs up. Knowledge develops, creates, generates pride. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Love edifies. True manifestations of the Spirit, His true operations at work, do not and cannot foster pride, jealousy, or selfish ambition. Those things do not exist where the Spirit is at work and are not generated by the Spirit. So if you see what you consider to be a very spiritual group of people, but there tends to be some ambition involved in it, I would question, is the Spirit really at work? If there's pride involved in it, I would say, where's the fear of the Lord in this? The fear of the Lord is present where there is wisdom. And where those things exist, jealousy in the body, it's not wisdom from above. It is wisdom from below. And it is man-generated wisdom. Isaiah 33, verse 5, the prophet said, The Lord is exalted, for He dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness, and He will be the stability of your times. Oh, I love that right now. He will be the stability of your times. Americans getting ready to vote. He will be the stability of your times. Not which party wins or loses. Not where the government goes. The United States government is not my stability. He is. And He will be the stability of your times. A wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. And then Isaiah says, The fear of the Lord is His treasure. Him, by the way, being Jesus. Because he's talking about Jesus there. The one who is exalted. Who will be the stability of our times. And the fear of the Lord is his treasure. So when he says, I'm coming quickly and my, and my reward is with me. If he has a treasure to offer, I guarantee you the fear of the Lord's in there somewhere. The fear of the Lord is so incredibly important in all of these operations. So, the word of knowledge is divine Information. It's that which you know which you would not otherwise know. It's something God drops into your heart to know or understand, perhaps about a brother or sister. And so you go to them and you, you share that, and they realize that God is confirming something they've told He's told them that, that you shouldn't know about. That would be a word of knowledge. We were at a, a Calvary Pastors retreat a couple of years back. 
we're having a time of, of worship and prayer and, and, and really allowing the operations of the Spirit, just kind of opening it up for that at the end of the evening. And at one point, uh, there was a young man sitting up in the front row down on his knees and he was praying and, and the Lord dropped something into my heart for him. Well, I'm not going to tell you what it was. It's personal. And I felt weird because I didn't even know who this guy was. But I felt really strange, but I felt like, i got to go tell him this. And so I went up and knelt down and put my hand on his shoulder and I said, can I pray for you? And he said, yeah. And so I prayed for a minute because I was him hawing around. I didn't want to go where I was supposed to go. And finally I said, I think I have a word from the Lord for you, but you got to test this. I could be wrong. I told him what it was and he turned to me and he said, that is exactly what I was just praying. That's a word of knowledge. I didn't know that. I had no way of knowing it. It's not soothsaying. It is not palm reading. It is not guessing. It is not speculation. It's a word of knowledge that the Lord gives. And it can be a very practical thing. And for that young man, it was confirming to what he was praying at the time. And so it was incredibly encouraging for him. And I went back to my seat just going, that was weird. The word of knowledge, divine information. The word of wisdom is divine application in that we now know how to move on something or to respond to a given situation. Let me show you with Jesus. And He is the best example, by the way, of every one of these operations. Consider Jesus. Luke 2.52, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. That used to bother me. It doesn't anymore doesn't mean Jesus kept getting smarter and smarter. You wonder, how can He be God and, 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 and mature in knowledge? He doesn't say He matures in knowledge. He says in, in wisdom. He continued increasing in wisdom and in stature. Stature is obvious. He was born a baby and He grew up. So, of course, He was increasing in stature. But He increased in wisdom, meaning there was more and more evidence of the divine nature being seen in Jesus. As He grew, as He acted, as this child becoming a boy, becoming a young man, becoming a man, people saw the wisdom more and more often, and it was just, wow. He was increasing in wisdom. doesn't mean He was gaining more Himself because He lacked. It means that He was becoming more and more obviously a man of the Spirit of God. People were noticing. Increasing in wisdom. But there's applied wisdom in Jesus' life. Applied wisdom. We, we see Him at work. Turning your Bibles over to Luke chapter 20. Keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians 12. Luke chapter 20. In verse 22, scribes and the chief priests are still going after Jesus. They're trying to take Him out. They're trying to catch Him however they can. And in Luke 20, verse 22, it says, they questioned Him. This is verse 21. They questioned Him saying, Teacher, we know that You speak and teach correctly, and You are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Butter, butter, butter. <laughs> verse 22. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they thought they had Him. Should we pay taxes? This is great. If he says yes, every Jew in the crowd is going to walk away. If he says no, the Roman authorities could be called for his sedition. Either way, we've got him down. What's he going to say? How is he going to respond? You know the answer. He detected their trickery. <laughs> 
And he said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people, and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Wisdom! So many of the responses of Jesus are direct examples of the word of wisdom. He just knew how to answer. He knew how to apply the situation. He knew how to deal with people. He was never taken for a fool. Because he walked in the pattern of the word of wisdom. The spirit of wisdom was upon him. What about the word of knowledge? Go back a little further to Luke chapter 6. Luke 6, verse 6, On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath, so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking. This is not speculation. Again, he wasn't guessing. He wasn't just kind of reading their behavior or their movement around the synagogue. He knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath to save a life or to destroy it? Verse 10 says, after looking around at them all, I might add that Mark chapter 3, verse 5 says, he looked around at them all with anger, grieved in his spirit at their hardness of heart. He knew exactly what they were thinking and what they were doing. Here's a man with a withered hand and they're making him a pawn in a game to try and mess with Jesus to see if he was going to heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus looks at that and it ticks him off. After looking around at them, he said to to him, to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. And they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. This was not some form of telepathy or or some kind of mind-reading trick. It was the word of knowledge. And understand, when you read Isaiah 11, verse 2, and it describes the operations, the sevenfold ministries, if you will, of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord is upon Him, Isaiah said, upon Jesus. So every one of these things are constantly at work in Jesus, operating in Jesus. He just knew what they were thinking. And it's not the only time in His ministry. In chapter 7, go over a chapter, we see it again. He's at the house of Simon the Pharisee who invited him to come dine. And of course, you know the story. Jesus comes in. Simon doesn't offer him uh, oil for his head. He doesn't offer him uh, washing for his feet. Just has him sit down at the table, treats him commonly. And he's sitting there, and then the, the woman came in, of course. The woman who everyone in town knew was a sinner, especially Simon. And she comes in weeping and she falls down at his feet and with her tears are dripping onto his muddy feet and she takes her hair and begins to wipe off and clean off his feet with her tears and with her hair and she's anointing him with perfume and Simon is absolutely incensed. See, because she was anointing his feet with perfume. So he was incensed. 
And, and he said, if this man were a prophet, verse 39, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. A sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, Simon wasn't talking. He was thinking to himself. And Jesus said, Simon, let's talk. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which one of them will love him more? And Simon said, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you've judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but since she came in, since the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven those who are reclining with him began to say to themselves who is this man who even forgives sins and he said to the woman your faith has saved you go in peace and Jesus was saving a woman and he was trying to get at Simon he was dealing with Simon he had both of these going on I believe right here both the word of knowledge he knew exactly what Simon was thinking and the word of wisdom he applied the situation to the Pharisee taught the Pharisee with with great wisdom the truth. Now, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge. By the way, don't sit there and wonder, was that just a word of wisdom that I have? Did did I just offer a word of knowledge? Which, Which operation am I functioning in right now? It doesn't matter. We just operate under divine instruction. We don't have to know which gift is which, which ministry is which, which operation is which. All we have to do is keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Trusting and loving Him, worshiping Him, and He will give to each just as He wills. It's not my concern what the name of the particular gift is. And I shared last week, and this is absolutely only my opinion, I don't even think this is a complete list. I think there are multiple operations of the Spirit of God that He wills, that He offers, that He brings to given people in given places and time. And we're not supposed to be checking off a list of our spiritual gifts to see how good we are or how spiritual we are. We're just supposed to love Jesus and love each other and the gifts will be in operation. And I don't have to go back to my seat at the Calvary Pastors Conference and go, was that a word of knowledge? i got to write that down. I had a word of knowledge tonight. It doesn't matter. Whether I can define these things or not, it does not matter. Now we're going to keep defining them, but it just it doesn't matter. Verse 9. Verse 9. Heteros, that is to another of a different kind, he says, faith. And he's going to continue now into the next list, the list of what I would call divine intervention. And this next set quite literally goes beyond belief. It begins with faith. Pistis in the Greek. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. So, right here, to another of a different kind, 
faith by the same Spirit. So the Holy Spirit brings the operation of faith to bear. Now understand, and I think you know this, that all faith is spiritually given. When you came to believe in Jesus for the very first time, you didn't do that on your own. That was saving faith, and it was given to you to believe. I believe in everybody's life, at some point, Jesus has a cup full of saving faith, and He's handing it to the person. And all you did in the moment you believed was take it, receive it, accept it. I, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Saving faith, and everybody has that faith. And then, of course, there's the faith that we walk in, learning to trust God and, and believe in Him. The faith on this list, because he's talking about supernatural operations of the Spirit, is a supernatural faith. A supernatural trust. I believe a a trust that God gives when it's absolutely necessary, completely critical to have in that moment or in that time, a greater faith than you would normally have in yourself. Elijah knew that faith. Up on Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18. Think about this. James tells us in James chapter 5, Elijah was a man just like us. There's no different. He was just a guy. And yet he stood on Mount Carmel and he challenged the prophets of Baal and Asherah. Calls them all together. You may recall the story, has them build an altar, he builds an altar, and he says, let's call on our gods and let's see who answers. And Elijah remarkably had a supernatural faith. God's going to do something here. God will answer me. I mean, you read the story in 1 Kings 18 and there is no question in the behavior, in the words of Elijah, no question but that God is about to do something supernatural and miraculous. He just knows. How does he know? Word of knowledge? No. Faith. He absolutely believes something amazing is just around the corner. To the point that he's taunting the prophets of Baal. Where, where is your... Maybe he's asleep. Yell louder. So they yell louder, you know. Uh, maybe he's indisposed, you know. Maybe Baal is in the restroom with a catalog or something. <laughs> Call out to him, and they're gashing themselves, and they're bleeding all over themselves. Nothing. And then what does Elijah do? Pray? No, he didn't pray just yet. He said, dig a trench around my altar. Fill it with water. Douse salt. Soak it down, guys. And then he prays and fire comes down from heaven and licks up the entire altar, dries up all the water until it's bone dry and the offering is gone and everything's just fried. God responded. Elijah knew he would. And Elijah was just like you. But in that moment, he had supernatural faith. Now, just after that, he ran like a frightened baby from Jezebel. (laughs) And in that, I say, yep, just like me. Supernatural faith, the operation of faith where the Spirit is at work. It's what allowed Peter to get out of the boat. Everybody focuses on the sinking. What about the few steps that he actually took and did not sink? Nobody else in the history of mankind, save Jesus alone, walked on water. But Peter did. Why? Faith. Spirit was in operation. And for those brief few moments, Peter had enough faith that his faith carried him across the top of the waves until he took his eyes off Jesus, lost faith, and went in. That story is in Matthew 14. So Elijah, we see it in Peter, we see it in the apostles, we see it in the healings and the things that they did. Amazing faith. It's Jesus in everything he did. 
John 5.19, again, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it's something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. How is that a description of faith? Listen. Faith is a manifestation of relationship. Which is a fancy way of saying, the more you know someone, the easier you can trust them. My trust in my wife is far greater now, 30 years into marriage, than it was 30 years ago. Not that I didn't trust her then, but as our relationship has grown, so has my trust. As my relationship with Jesus grows, so does my faith. For those who say, Lord, increase my faith, I think the Lord would say, spend some time with me. Let's be together. Elijah spent time with the Lord. Peter spent time with the Lord. Jesus Oh, Jesus spent time with His Father and only did the things He saw His Father doing. And as I know my Father, my faith will increase. And so there's the increase of faith over a lifetime, but again, there is that supernatural trust, a blessed assurance in the moment, God's got this. God's doing this. I don't have to worry about it. He has it. And understand that in this next section here, Beginning with faith, he starts with faith because faith is required, I believe, for all four of the next effects to even be in operation. To another, faith by the same Spirit. And to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the effecting of miracles. To another, prophecy. And to another, the distinguishing of spirits. Faith is required. For gifts of healings. Note that, I said gifts of healings. I'll explain why I said that, but that's charismata, gifts, plural, yamaton, or yama is, is healing, yamaton is healings, plural, gifts of healings. And he says, effectings of miracles. So I want to take those two operations together. The effectings of miracles, that's energma plus the word dunamis. So it's the effecting of power, it's the operation, what you could call operational power. And Paul says these are legitimate things that the Spirit does. He brings gifts of healing and He brings power. He brings the miraculous. And they are two different things, although they're very similar to one another. Matthew focused heavily on the healings and the miracles of Jesus as proof of His messianic authority. You see this throughout the Gospel of Matthew. His big deal is Jesus as Messiah. Jesus as King. And so he tracks on these things. Matthew 4.24 They brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. How? By the power of the Spirit. Whose Spirit? His Spirit. Same Spirit, by the way, who's at work among us, the Spirit of Christ. And so by the power of His Spirit, of the Spirit, He healed. Matthew chapter 8, verse 16. When evening came, it says, they brought to Him many who were demon-possessed, and He cast out the spirits with a word, and He healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill, Matthew says, what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah 53, verse 4, He Himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Matthew chapter 12, verse 15. And these are just a sampling through Matthew. Many followed Him and He healed them all. We have another scene in Matthew where Jesus goes and sits down on the hillside and for three days does nothing but heal people. 
miraculous work of the Spirit, healing power of the Spirit. We see this in and at work in Jesus. Now, the definitions of healings and miracles are easy enough. Healings have to do with the physical, you know, Him healing our bodies of illnesses and diseases and infirmities. Miracles are more the power movements of Jesus. That would be quieting the storm, walking on the water, water from wine, feeding 5,000 from a few loaves and some fish. You could go on and on, but that's the distinction. One is just miraculous power. The other one is the healing touch that literally heals a life. But what's important here, and you got to note this, is get technical with me just for a moment. The noun forms that Paul uses here, they're all plural. They're all plural. He, he doesn't say the gift of healing, which is part of the reason why I say he's not talking about spiritual gifts. He's talking about spiritual operations. He says gifts of healings. Both words are plural. He says the effecting of or the effectings of miracles, both plural. Why is that important? He also later will say the discernments of spirits, plural, and various kinds of tongues, different kinds, plural, of tongues. Now you may have wondered, as I spoke last week and then again on Sunday, mentioning I don't think this is a list of spiritual gifts but operations, well you might have zoned in on, well he says gifts of healing. He does. But he doesn't say the gift of healing. Don't go out on a limb. Feel free to disagree. Not right now, later, Vicky. But you, you can disagree. I don't think there is the gift of healing. I don't think you can find it in Scripture. I absolutely believe there are gifts of healings. But I don't believe Jesus gives, God gives the gift of healing like say He would give the gift of teaching or the gift of prophecy or the gift of, of any of the others listed if we go over to Romans 12. Well then, how does this work? Paul says gifts of healings. Gordon Fee puts it this way, and I, I want to read this quote because it, it explains I think so well. He says, the plural probably suggests not a permanent gift, as it were, but that each occurrence is a gift in its own right. Gifts of healings. Now, the professional faith healer, I'm sure, would take complete umbrage with this. He would have a problem with this. Well, you're messing with my livelihood now, Pastor. I am a healer. Well, not biblically. I wouldn't even deny that that people have opportunity to heal and that there are gifts of healing. I just don't think there's the gift of healing because these operations are not necessarily given like the gifts of Romans 12. In Romans 12, Paul lists gifts. Do you ever take back a gift? See, I don't think God would. In fact, I know that the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. So when God gives a gift, it's there, it's set, it's, it's done, it's, it's a thing. And it is yours to use. These operations are not like the ministries of Ephesians 4 where someone has a calling. The gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. You're called to a ministry. That's your ministry, man. Run with it. But the operations of the Spirit are given as the Spirit wills, when He wills, where He wills. 
He does it His way in His time. These operations, all of these, appear, at least to me, to be given on an as-needed basis. So what's great about Him is you don't have to be a healer to be used to heal someone. You don't have to go out and find a healer and bring them in and have a healing service so that people can get healed. No, He gives gifts of healings as needed where needed. You don't have to be a miracle worker by gifting to effect miracles. If that's what the Spirit has chosen to do, all of these things, again, operate as the Spirit wills as needed for the common good. Gifts of healings and effectings of miracles are important. They are vital aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit among us. We have seen in this body gifts of healing. Well, just because the cancer went away? Oh, how often Christians, we dial these things down. We water them down and say, well, I mean, we pray for healing, so we're all glad that He's better. And so we miss the work that God's doing. That Joe Schmo can go over there and be used of God to heal somebody. And Jane Doe can affect a miracle. And neither of them have to be particularly gifted in that. The Spirit just uses them at the right place at the right time. So Rick, wait, what are you saying? Are you saying that you actually believe gifts of healings and effectings of miracles are still at work right now? I absolutely do. More on that in just a minute. Back in the book of Isaiah, I'll just read this to you. Isaiah chapter 35. It's important that we recognize the gifts of healing and the, and the effectings of miracles. Why? Because they are especially associated with the Spirit of God in Hebrew antiquity, in Hebrew history. The Jewish people would recognize the coming of Messiah because there were gifts of healings and there were effectings of miracles. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 4. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but He will save you. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. And then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. And he continues on. And remember what Paul said at the very beginning of the letter. He said in 1 Corinthians 2.4, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of dunamis, power. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And I think tragically, too often in the church, Christians make a distinction between the then and the now of God's working. The past tense and the present tense. The first century miracles and the church today. And I believe this is a deeply flawed understanding of the work of the kingdom. The operation of the kingdom of God, which Jesus inaugurated and understand which Jesus will later consummate. But from the inauguration to the consummation, we are in the age of the operation of the kingdom. The building of the kingdom. The preparation for the kingdom. And in this age, these things must be in operation until the kingdom is consummated and they're not needed anymore. 
And the day is coming, my friends, when none of this will be needed because we will be with Him. And we will see Him and we will function with Him and move with Him and we'll be in His kingdom and and all this will just be normal. But they're necessary operations now because we are involved in the work of the kingdom. And when we are not operating in the gifts and the ministries and the effects of the Spirit, you got to wonder how effective are we really being for the kingdom at all? We're called to more. 